Hello and welcome to Next on WQLN. I'm your host, Marcus Atkinson. Thank you for tuning in. Uh, September 8, 2019, there was an article or an opinion piece written by Lisa Thompson of the Erie Times. And Lisa challenged our sensibilities on an organization called Unified Erie, which as of right now in October, there's a segment of it that will lose funding if something isn't done. I'll read the opening statement for you. It says, uh, Unified Erie let, let us see the power of laying aside historic blinders and mobilizing an entire community to resolve a crisis. And our title was Unified Erie's Funding Crisis, A Test for Erie. Today, we've invited several key members of the Unified Erie Movement, and we want to talk about this particular issue. But one of the things that I want to say at the outset is there are different times in history where you find yourselves at a crossroads. And do you uh, put your money where your mouth is, per se, or do you fold? Erie's had a lot of different situations transpire over the years that has made all of us feel like this is no longer the Erie that we once knew. Gun violence, uh, gang violence, the recidivism rate, all of these things have really plagued our community at a very, very alarming rate. Into Unified Erie, we'll unpack how they came about and what they're going after. But as you're listening today, I really want you to wrestle with what your particular take is on what you see on the news, what you read in the newspaper. And oftentimes we are struck with righteous indignation when we read about shootings and people going to jail and coming out of jail and the broken families that it leaves in its wake. But this is one of those moments in history that many believe we have an opportunity to be introspective and, and ask ourselves, how do we really feel about this and how much do we really want to resolve these issues? How much do we want Erie to be better from its core, not necessarily from a brick and mortar standpoint? A lot of buildings are being built. A lot of new businesses are flirting with Erie. But certainly that would be a pyrrhic victory if the soul of Erie is crushed and broken beneath the weight of some of these issues that we'll discuss today. So in order to help us understand and really unpack this, this um, very detailed issue, we have Amy Isert from the Mercer Civic Institute, director of the Mercer Civic Institute. Amy, welcome to the show. Thank you. And Sheila Selman, the, give me your title again. Program manager. Program manager of ECCRS. S-A. E-C-R-S-S-A. Always mess the initials up. It never fails. Let the record show these initials I get wrong every time, and I've said it a thousand times. Sheila, welcome to the show. Thank you. Just think Erie County. Erie County. Re-entry. Re-entry. Service and Support Alliance. You get an A. How about that? Very good. So one of the things that Lisa Thompson talks about in the article, July 2015, heartbreaking month in the city of Erie. You've got Jacob Pashinsky murdered over a bike. Yes. You've got young Elijah Jackson and Shakur Franklin, 16-year-olds, murdered at a house party. Right. You've got 18-year-old Justin Wiley murdered as well, former prep standout. Well, I don't think he was 18 at the time, but all four of those in a span of one month. Months later, Amy, if you want to talk about the genesis, months later, uh, Marshall Piccinini, yourself, several others, spearhead this trip to Kansas City to take a look at Casey Nova. Talk about that and some of, just some of the conversations that led into arranging this trip, because that was a horrific month for the city of Erie. It, it was. And, um, you know, I had gone to a training in Michigan at that time, uh, working with uh, Project Safe Neighborhoods in the city of Erie, and which was another uh, enforcement initiative. And met some folks from Kansas City at that training and came back 
And I knew that some folks in Erie had tried to um, convene a group of young folks and have a conversation about choices that they had been making. And that that didn't really work out real well because there wasn't um, any real structure to to those efforts that what they were trying to do. And, and it really appealed to me how they were doing things in Kansas City, shared that information. Me, I'm not law enforcement. <laughs> so, you know, a researcher coming back and sharing that with law enforcement. And it was it was well received um, to the point where we invited some folks from Kansas City to first meet with law enforcement to see if they'd be interested in that strategy. Because essentially the strategy is if it's successful, law enforcement doesn't have to enforce the law. Um, and so the, the, uh, it was really an organic conversation that had occurred and we thought, well, we should probably go out and see what this strategy is all about, take a group of folks. And there wasn't really any structure to who went or how we went. Uh, it was a matter of, hey, I think w that uh, we should invite this person. I think we should invite this person. And just people went out and invited people they thought would be interested in, in witnessing the strategy. Mm -hmm. We knew that we wanted community members to go um, to witness the strategy. Um, I think I'm, I'm the one that reached out to you, Marcus, and invited you to come on the trip. And, uh, and, and we went. And uh, I think there were 20 of us, 18 or 20 of us that went out to Kansas City to witness the strategy from all walks. It was law enforcement, it was um, some folks from healthcare, um, community folks, researchers, and uh, it was just kind of, when we went on that trip, I didn't know everybody who was going and I think that everybody else kind of felt that way too. And we went in to witness a strategy that we weren't really sure what, how we would feel about it. Um, but we kind of came back to Erie a team and energized because it felt like uh, through this strategy, we could see a real impact in Erie. Kansas City, really big city. You know, they've got a lot of work to do. And Erie, it was that there was just this spirit that we could do this and this could have real impact in Erie and save lives. So this goes back to Lisa Thompson's article. This was a moment in time where a group of citizens from various disciplines said, you know, we have to do something. Even now, people look at Chicago and they see all of the homicides and be it for racial reasons or other, you know, you just get the sense of why are we not doing something about this? And so you took the intentional steps to do something. Fast forward, this comes together. It becomes this official thing, Unified Erie. It gets funded. So talk about when it first hits the ground running. What did that look like? Yeah, well, I think that um, when this first hit the ground running, the first thing is, is I think people have a misconception of what Unified Erie is. Mm -hmm. It isn't an organization or an entity. It can't even receive funding. So the initiatives that are run under the umbrella of Unified Erie, all of that money goes to whoever is doing that work. So for instance, with this particular strategy, those that are doing the work when it comes to the programmatic side of things are GCAC and the Y. And so they're the folks that receive the funding to do the work, not Unified Erie. They're partners with. But um, when it first hit the ground running, I think that we were all excited when it got funded by the Erie Community Foundation and the United Way of Erie were gracious enough to, to put up the money for the first three years. And it was, it was a new way of doing business. Um, you know, law enforcement, their, their role is to enforce the law, not to show their hand 
uh, to people on the street that are high risk for not only offending, but also victimization, and then offer them help. It's a new way of doing business, and it's, um, I think, uncomfortable for most at first, but not really. Uh, it seemed like a natural fit. And, uh, you know, I didn't participate, but I was able to witness um, our call in in Erie. And our first one, I thought it just, I just, there was just something about it that we knew something was changing, that something was going to be happening. And, uh, you know, those that attended, uh, it seemed very well received. And we just kept moving forward with it. I mean, there's always been the detractors. But the focus is on, you know, saving lives. Mm -hmm. May I add something to this? Sure, sure. <clears throat> so, <clears throat> excuse me. So at the same time, while in 2015, um, this conversation around group violence reduction strategies going on, on the reentry side of things, I am participating with um, Erie Together and uh, like 40 other stakeholders, uh, whether it be criminal justice agencies, faith-based individuals, other community providers, because I wasn't working for GCAC then, I was working at Erie County Care Management um, as a supervisor over um, housing programs and other criminal justice programs, and we're all coming together to work on this strategy that now we are operating out of underneath the ECRSSA. And so at the same time, the, that strategy and at the, uh, the uh, group violence reduction strategy are both being formulated. So in early 2016, the planning team decided this is the best place under the reentry prong of Unified Erie, prevention, enforcement, reentry, the reentry prong, that these two initiatives come together. Thus, this two strategies, one goal, reentry, and group, and then gun violence reduction strategy come together. Because we, as the helps portion, the ECRSSA, we are not the enforcement piece by any means. We facilitate we help uh, invite we invite the individuals to it we facilitate the call-in uh, the call-in is the nickname that it's been given and it's got that very bad misnomer where we're picking up the phone and and letting people tell us oh I think Sheila Silman she's out there in the streets doing things that she shouldn't be doing she should be getting in and hearing this message it's not like that it's data-driven and I'll let Amy speak to that but it's data-driven as to how invitees are determined who should come and hear the message we want you safe we want you alive and we want you out of prison so I want to stay with you for just a sure. minute because you touched on something that again back to Lisa Thompson's article that this has brought people together from various backgrounds in an unprecedented manner so right. simultaneously in 2015 you're working on this from a different angle right. with a completely different organization right and at some point you see the need to bring these missions together because it made the most sense the actual merger and you actually coming in with ECRSSA. Talk about that a little bit. Uh, as far as the reentry prong? Yes. Yes. So with that prong, when we were working, it started in 2013, this planning team. And in 2013 through two, early 2016, we learned during that process that 1,250 people are returning to Erie County annually from federal, state, and county incarceration mm -hmm. every single year. We're also learning that during this time, we figured out approximately across the board there, 41% of those folks within three years 
So think about that. That's 41 out of 100 people mm -hmm. are returning back to prison. And, and during that time, 58% of those folks are receiving new charges within three years. So folks are cycling back into the system within three short years. And we wanted to come to, to a place to where what model could we come up with and determine that would help stop this cycle of recidivism, that revolving door that people often refer to. We um, looked at a model out of Lancaster, and they had a model down there where folks were going and identifying in their, their county jail, identifying individuals that were coming out and working with them prior to release, identifying their needs, and then working with them once they got out through a case management support model. And it wasn't based upon any kind of clinical diagnosis. Typically, uh, case management in Erie County has been uh, utilized through blended case management or through uh, drug and alcohol case management. That requires a clinical diagnosis. What happens with that is it means you're serving, and there's nothing wrong with this, but you're serving individuals who have a serious mental illness or who have a drug and alcohol opioid epidemic. Uh, drug and alcohol opioid uh, uh, diagnosis. That leaves everybody else out who doesn't have those, those diagnoses. So we're not a level of care, meaning we don't bill medical assistance, we're not MA eligible for billing. What that then means is that we're a level of service. We're program funded, and but it, it gives us a broader base of individuals that we can serve and we can support. Mm. We don't provide services directly to the individual. We're service-rich in Erie County. So what we do is we're the experts in where they can find that support, and then we then help get them connected exactly. to those services. Mm -hmm. The discussions are about the importance of reentry. You know, it's interesting because I think that we have a culture right now that is quite unforgiving uh, that uh, in giving people a second chance. And what we have to recognize is that 90 to 95% of people who um, commit an offense that are incarcerated will be coming back to the community. So incarceration is not the solution. Uh, as Sheila said, you know, we have a recidivism rate that's, that's pretty high. Over 50% are, will commit a new offense, if not provided the proper resources when they return. Um, you know, it's kind of like dropping somebody in an island with no resources and expecting them to survive, and not only survive, but make all of their appointments, get a job, take care of their kids um, without any assistance. And that's just not realistic. And that's, uh, you know, the, the reentry efforts through ECRSSA address some of those things, um, provide those supports, provide that assistance that's, that's needed so that people can have that second chance and be successful at it. And it bridges with the um, group violence reduction strategy or the gun violence reduction strategy, those that are still in the community that are high risk. It serves those folks as well because their needs really aren't much different. They're at a different point of the continuum, but their needs really aren't that much different than people who are coming back into the community from incarceration. Education, training, housing, uh, mental health services, uh, mentoring, um, those are all needs. So the equity and fairness conversation is not a siloed conversation. One of the things people try to help others appreciate is that it permeates everything. When you talk about equity and fairness, you mentioned that this is an unforgiving society when it comes to making mistakes, unless you are from a certain demographic. 
True. And you'll see certain convictions throughout the country and even in this own city and state sometimes. And given the person's, you know, physical hue or where they're from, you see some of the consequences and you're saying, is that consistent? So this is a conversation that speaks to equity and fairness once again. The fact that this is even in question in terms of funding this program. You know, it's been so much difficulty. If it was dealing with a different demographic, would it take this long to solve this problem? I don't I don't know. I you know the the funding issue has been a, a real struggle because we've been um, gracious enough that we have local foundation, Erie mm-hmm. Community Foundation and the United Way that funded it for the first 3 years. When it comes to grant funding through the state and federal government, oftentimes they don't fund things that have been previously been funded. Mm-hmm. Um, they don't want to start, they want to start a new program or expand an existing program. They're not about sustaining a program right. that's already proven to be working. Right. And so it, did we shoot ourselves in the foot by our local funders coming to the plate first uh, is really kind of sad to think about. That's very sad. Very sad. Mm-hmm. Uh, but know, here's the other thought too. You know, the opioid epidemic brought local monies to us um, in in the form of case management. It did, and rightfully so. And not only that, DDAP, the Department of Drug and Alcohol Programming, has granted out monies, and um, our local drug and alcohol programs has case management supports to individuals that even have anything lesser than uh, an opioid opioid uh, diagnosis to help the individuals. And I don't argue against Against that. My point, though, is, is that even with um, reentry, which our attorney general said that there's a 70% recidivism rate across the state of Pennsylvania, and he said that's a failure rate. He, he pointed out any business that had a 70% failure rate, they'd be out of business. Exactly. And so um, if we have that kind of a failure rate, then I believe, and this has been my message to our legislators, both uh, the state and the federals uh, people, that there needs to be line items to where dollars and funding streams are channeled towards communities to be able to manage and prove responsible funding uh, responsibility that we can do this if we don't want to see our families, no matter what economic status or wherever they come from, not go back to prison. And to be able to do this and continue to serve our folks, to keep our folks out of prison and to help them, you have to have that long-term sustainability. When people think about the revolving door, they think about that ind- individual caught within that revolving door. They don't think about the families who are torn mm-hmm. through and being dragged with them through it. It becomes cyclical. It becomes uh, traumatic for those kids who are who are taken away. Can you imagine coming home and realizing your mother or your father or your grandmother or whomever, your loved one, is not coming home because they were arrested or whatever. And I'm not saying that the arrest or the detention isn't justified, but what I am saying is is when the persons come home to just hand to them from the parole officer or whomever, hey, you gotta get a job, you gotta get drug and alcohol testing, you gotta go here, you gotta go there and see me in two weeks and tell me what you've done, without any guidance or support, which historically has been the pattern, that's not, that hasn't worked. We've seen that. So 
we're here and have for three years demonstrated that we do work. So now here we are. And so folks are very clear. We haven't waited till the 11th hour. I have not waited till the midnight hour. GCAC has not waited till the midnight hour. It's been an ongoing effort. It has been since February of 2017. We have been, and I started September 12th, 2016. We have been sharing what we do with everybody. Mm -hmm. And the, the part of the problem, too, is, is when you're starting out, because we're a young program, three years, and you're starting out, you have to get ahead of the money, too, meaning the outcomes have to be able to come around to demonstrate this is a model that will work, because we were fairly certain with the model where we would wrap the individual with the with the individual supports the the peer mentor the case manager we team work with the parole officer we team work with a peer group as well and we're all working together on behalf of the individual and other, any other support they may have and we're working together to get them what they need and we're there for them and then we have these these successes we felt we could help reduce recidivism from 41% to probably the mid-20s, but what we found at the end of 2018, um, Mercyhurst University Civic Institute as our independent research partner, we're at 7%. Mm, that's an excellent segue. Uh, you are listening to Next on WQLN. I'm your host, Marcus Atkinson. I'm here in studio with Amy Isert from the Mercyhurst, Mercyhurst Civic Institute and with Sheila Silman from GCAC ECRSSA as well. We're talking about Unified Erie, reentry. Let's start with Amy with this segment. Sheila, perfect segue. You talked about that 7% rate versus 41% in terms of recidivism. Amy, Mercyhurst, Mercyhurst Civic Institute measures results. We do. Give us the results. What does this look like? How successful has this program been on paper? Uh, this program has been quite successful on paper. Uh, when we're talking about recidivism rates, we're talking about 7% uh, for those individuals who have returned to incarceration after completing this program. So it's 7% in Sheila's program, in the ECRSSA program, versus 44% um, countywide. Mm. Okay, and then we're looking at a recidivism rate of 20, about 24 percent for those that have committed new offenses versus 58 percent of those that committed new offenses countywide. Can I stop you right there for yes. just a So go with the cost benefit analysis. Okay. So that's a telling statistic you just gave. But what does it cost to house these individuals that you are preventing from a, going back into a, the system? A conservative rate is about seventy five dollars a day to house an inmate. Mm. Um, and then this program costs about $12 a day. Huge difference. Huge difference when you're talking about cost savings. Mm -hmm. uh, there's a lot of things that have to go into a cost-benefit analysis, so we can't say for certain because we can't predict who will and will not. Um, but, uh, you know, I know that Sheila has the numbers right in front of her uh, in terms of the, the cost savings uh, for the program. And we've not only looked at it from a cost savings of incarceration, We've also looked at this program in terms of a cost savings of health care costs because violence in a community ha is very costly. Mm -hmm. Surprise tag to um, and so we have identified that it's been about $2.7 million in medical costs that have been saved um, due to the reduction in shots, people shot, 
throughout Erie County since 2000, comparing 2014 and then 2017 and 2018 numbers. That's significant. You wanted to give some of the savings specifically on that. Well, I can. So let's think about this. We, our recidivism rate, and I don't want to lose the audience with too much technicality, is measured through, we have two levels of service, the higher level of service, because we measure, um, that is intensive case management. That is, um, to be short and succinct, for individuals who are our citizens coming back to our community who have been in the community, if they're already here, six months or less. And so those folks that we measured the recidivism rate from was 152 people who were closed, who had already gone through the program and had closed by the time 2018 had come to an end. So we took 152 people, and with, using 41%, out of 41%, that would mean that we were looking at 62 people that were potentially non-participants. So you look at that and you take 62 times $74 a day at the county jail. And you'd, I used that for one week. I looked at, so you got 62 people at $74 a day, that's $4,500 roughly a day oh, for one day. And then you, I multiplied that times seven days, and that's $32,000 for one week, okay? So then those who did recidivate and, and during that time out of those 152 was 11 people. Use that same formula times seven days, that's $5,700. So it, that's a difference of uh, $2,600 or $26,500. That's, that's a huge difference. Now, that's potential savings for one week when you're looking at the difference compared to $12 per day. So with, with cost benefit, like she said, I mean, when you're looking at it, it can be you can be looked at in different ways, and you look at the difference of keeping somebody out for $74 or $75 a day versus $12 a day. And we work real close with the county parole department, the state parole, and federal probation as well in trying to, to help the individual get whatever it is that they need. Going, can, if I can, can I go to the call-in as well? Actually, we're going to touch on that a little bit in the next okay. segment. All right. Very if, good. if we can talk a little bit about the impact that it has from a societal standpoint, so shots fired, gun violence, gang violence, or group-related violence. Amy, touch on that for us a little bit. What kind of impact has it had in those categories? So in 2014, that's when we probably saw the, um, well, that's when this, this whole process started to, to get into place. We had about 379 shots fired in the city of Erie. In 2018, uh, that decreased to about 139 shots fired. So three, almost 380 to 139 shots fired. Um, that's significant. Uh, we had uh, 72 people shot in 2014. In 2018, there were 35. So the, the impact of this is um, lives saved, right. uh, as well as I think that, uh, you know, Jesse can speak to in the next segment um, more about a feeling within the community in terms of community safety, mm -hmm. kids being able to go and play outside, families being comfortable with that, um, not your constant shots fired. Had a little bit of an uptick in the past two months. Um, but, you know, the, the process isn't, we're never going to cure violence, uh, but we're addressing it, and it needs to be addressed. Um, we had our first call in April 26, 2017, and it, 
from 2014 to early 2017, 16 young men lost their lives, a total of 16 young men. Since 2000, due to group-related violence, I want to make sure that's clear, group-related, where young men were going out and shooting one another, and um, I, my understanding is, is we're boasting about it on social media and other forms of saying due to, they were a member of a certain group. And my, uh, after April 26, there has not been any group-related homicides, zero. Uh, and it's not just because we had a call-in. One of the things that Lisa's article, or excuse me, Kevin Flowers had a follow-up article, and he talked about how someone was very skeptical about how this would work, you know, bring them in, yeah, and talk to them. And, and in fairness to that person who had that, uh, that kind of skepticism, I wasn't quite sure how this would work either. I couldn't quite wrap my head around how this would work. I mean, so you bring someone, you talk to them, and their life is going to change. It wasn't just that, because at the call-in, you have we have the mayor who, who says, hey, I care about you. Your life is worth something. You have law enforcement, the various pieces of law enforcement, uh, the chief, uh, the, the district attorney, the uh, chief prosecutor from the federal office, and um, you have them coming up and saying, listen, we do not want to have to do this, but if you're going to go out there and do the things that you do, then we are put in the position that we have to do enforcement. And then we have folks who who have um, who have been in this situation, have gone through incarceration, have been in these places and saying, you don't want to do this. I've turned my life around. We're here to help you. And then we sit down and have a meal with them afterwards. That's where the connection starts to be made. Before we started this, we were talking about you and I and, and all of us sitting here, how important relationships are. And so ECRSSA is there to be with, to help them after the call-in and to help develop that relationship. We have three case managers, an intake coordinator, myself, the peer mentor, to be able to help develop those relationships and walk with them through that journey to help get them to where they want to be. On the enforcement end, though, the other reason that we're at zero is because the DA says very clearly, if you choose not to take this, then we're going to do what we have to do. And if because you've been here, if you choose and think we're not serious and you go back to doing these things, then you're going to believe we're going to say to the courts, oh, when they are saying, oh, I'll turn my life around or whatever, I'm going to say, no, Your Honor, they were at this event. We gave them a chance, and they chose not they to. They chose not to take it. Perfect segue once again. This is Marcus Atkinson. Uh, you're listening to Next on WQLN. We're in studio with Amy. We have been in studio with Amy Iser from Mercy Earth Civic Institute and Sheila Silman from ECRSSA and GCAC. Amy actually has to leave after Thank this you. segment. Amy, we appreciate your insight. Thank you so Thank much you. for coming on Thank the show today. We segue talking about the call-ins. We've got uh, two of the case managers, well, case manager from ECRSSA, Jesse Tate. Jesse, welcome to the show. And we've got Tyshawn Taylor, client advocate for ECRSSA and the downtown YMCA. Tyshawn, welcome to the show. I know that the two of you have an extensive background in this community. Uh, if you don't know Jesse Tate, Jesse's been one of the mayors of Erie for a long time. He never was officially given the title, but in the neighborhood, he's a name that I'm 
you know, if, if you don't know Jesse Tate, you are not from inner city Erie. <laughs> it's pretty much that simple. So I think your involvement excited a lot of people when you came on board because they understood just the grassroots nature that you've been involved in community. Tashawn, the same can be said of you and your family. Uh, you just recently had the street dance. That's something that's been somewhat of a tradition in the inner city community. I want to say your father started that tradition many years ago. Um, over in the terrace. And so there are just so many different ways that you are involved. We'll start with you, Jesse. Talk about your background and community and what led to this moment of you coming on the ECRSSA team and why you chose to come aboard. I was an individual 25 years ago that spent some time in prison. And getting out of prison um, at that time, had I not had some really good people involved, the Ben Wileys, the Mel Witherspoons, Paris, Dr. Paris Baker, and James Boyd, who was at the time was my probation officer. And those guys um, just gathered, rallied around me and showed me uh, different ways to become a productive citizen in, in society. So fast forward um, 2016, um, I um, was working with the Blue Coats, also uh, with a, a brother Daryl Craig, and um, he, he was talking to me about it. At that time, I wasn't really um, interested because I was doing pretty well by myself. And then sitting down with brother D, and he telling me about how I would be perfect for this role. Because sometimes people can see things in you that you can't see in Absolutely. yourself. You know, and and so I haphazardly went along with it and things of that nature and he told me to fill out the application and I did and um, God came aboard and um, just something clicked in me like when I saw these individuals um, not having uh, the same opportunities that I had mm -hmm. when I was trying to change my life and, uh, and and seeing that there was something there now that could help them and I could be a part of it. Um, in the community, uh, you know, I've 29 years at Spoons League, which is a fixture in the community. Um, I've been on basketball staffs at uh, Strong Vincent and currently on Erie High, uh, et cetera. And so I'm around a lot of the kids and, uh, you know, to see that a lot you know, in talking with them and see that a lot of them really don't seem to look forward to college and things of mm -hmm. that nature and stuff like that um i feel as though something like this in the community for citizens that are returning is hope mm -hmm. and it's a lot of hope and uh the the Living in the inner city myself now, um, I just see a lot of people change the way that you know the way that they think. You know, because I remember getting out of prison, I had a criminal record. I was like, oh, nobody's gonna hire me. You know, I had that mentality. But then I had people around me. It was like, oh no, you have to start changing your life, be consistent, and things of that nature. And and and, and case in point, I'm a perfect example of that. Mm -hmm. So I feel as though um, you know this program is major and um, something that uh, is vital to the community. If you're talking about re revitalizing the community, mm -hmm. you got to start with the people, right? Yep. 
You know, I mean, I understand infrastructure and all of that other stuff, but if you're talking about revitalizing the community, you have to start with the people. I think one of the reasons that Brother D was really encouraging you to come on board with this, you know, we talked about your your deep roots in this community. And when you look at some of these posters that they've had on social media of all of these homicide victims, it's heartbreaking. But in particular, when you see the young black men, to a person, there is a personal connection and a personal story from your vantage point for every single one of those. It's a different kind of drive and a different kind of mission when you um, know the families, you're related to these people sometimes. These are conversations you're having at you know, family cookouts and it's a personal thing for you in many ways, correct? Uh, absolutely, and, and that's that's a good point, Marcus, because of those 16 guys, that were, I knew every one of them. Absolutely. And uh, some of them through coaching, some of them through spoons, some of them through relationships with the family, and relatives. Mm -hmm. So I was duly affected by that because every time I look around, I was attending a funeral or a wake or someone was asking me to come talk to the family and things of that nature. So, yeah, you know, um, the fact that young lives. Right. Funerals yeah. for the children of people you went to school with and grew up with. Oh, absolutely. Completely out of order from a natural sense. And, and, and something that, uh, you know, even though growing up in the inner city, I wasn't used to. You know, I fought and everything. But then to start seeing people actually murdered and gangs, something that I never wow. even fathomed, mm -hmm. starting to come into the community. Um, yeah, it was uh, it was something that was uh, very, very uh, enlightening. So, Tashan, I've listened to you um, at the call-ins and in personal conversation. You have no shame about helping these young men understand the rough road you've traveled to get to this place right now as a client advocate. Talk about that journey a little bit and just how you utilize that journey to help others right now. I sold drugs from 18 to 28 if I wasn't incarcerated for getting caught for selling drugs. By the time I was 28, I did 11 years. I was sentenced to 11 years in prison. When I came home, it was extremely hard to uh, just to um, put myself in a position to be a productive citizen. I, I applied for jobs, I would get hired and didn't get a letter in the mail that uh, we regretfully have to rescind our hire because of your record. Uh, it, it was happening all too often. Uh, even applying for apartments, it was the same situation and it was getting me frustrated. If I didn't have the poise and the patience to stay fast and stay focused, I could have went off the rails, but I, I, you know, it was a time, just a small, just to say, I knew I had a focus. It was a time a friend of mine offered me a half kilo of cocaine if I would come back and, and he would help me out. And and when I turned that down, when I had the strength and the, and, and, and the desire in me to turn that down, I knew I was focused. And, and the respect was there. He gave me a hug. We shook hands and we parted ways respectfully. And, you know, I knew he meant well because, because that was the life I lived. So I knew his, his goal in trying to lend his hand. But 
I knew I couldn't go down that road again. I lost too much. You know, while I was gone, you know, my 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 child, my youngest child was raped. You know, I lost my grandmother to cancer. I lost a nephew. I lost my home. I lost the woman I was with. I loved at that time. You know, it was just too much. So All while you were incarcerated. Exactly. So in in saying that, to come home and start that back over again. And to repeat those losses, there was no way I could do it. Do you see yourself in some of the clients that you advocate for through this program? Absolutely. Because it was times that you can look at me and you, you can you can say something to me about, um, come on, you know, you do this, I can get you a job. Yeah. You know, I flag you. I, this, this is much better. This is easier. But... At the same time, they haven't experienced the pain. They haven't experienced the loss that I experienced. So at those times, I haven't experienced any losses or any pain. So my my mind state was, I'm staying fast. The, the streets is what I know. It's easy. My money, my money tight. I don't worry about anything. I never worried about a price of anything. So why would I change it? So I see it in their eyes. There are other members that could not be on the show today. Uh, Sheila, if you want to just mention those individuals and also just for the listener, the again, the boots on the ground approach and the boots on the ground background for many of the people that work on your team. These are game changers, correct? Absolutely. So currently holding down the fort at our office is um, Curtis uh, Lofton, who is our intake call-in coordinator. Um, he had some intakes this morning and he felt that he really wanted to keep those appointments. So that's why he did not join us. And um, Curtis has got quite the background here in Erie. He has, uh, he has been an intake coordinator at the Salvation Army. Army. He's done a lot of different work throughout uh, the county, and uh, so he has a lot of experience that has helped us. Um, we are, um, I'll be honest with you, with the funding situation, our um, our staffing has gotten down to the wire. Uh, we had another young lady who was working for us and had to, she had to make a decision for her family. She's a single mom, and uh, we love her. She had to move on, though, because we the funding hasn't been finalized. We have, we have had great conversations conversations with local legislators. Um, we have um, Senator Dan Laughlin, who is working very hard for us, and also Representative Pat Harkin, who's, who's also looking and working hard for us. Uh, the governor's Northwest Regional Office um, is looking as well. But the difficulty is, is we don't have anything concrete, uh, so I can't say anything for sure. A lot of positive conversations. But um, the conversations I've had with Tyshawn and with Jesse and with Kurt and, um, and obviously for myself, we're committed. We are committed to be here and our funding at the end of, the, of October, if it, if it ends, it ends. And uh, we'll work up until the final minute. And if, uh, but that, that is hopefully not going to happen from what I'm hearing. But we, if anybody's out there thinking, what can I do? then please give your local legislator a call, call county council. Um, I don't know where council sits with this currently. Um, 
Uh, we have applied for council funding, but I don't know that that's going to be an opportunity. Uh, but at the same time, uh, like I had said earlier, funding streams need to come to the local communities. And that is something that's going to take legislative decisions down the line as well mm -hmm. for people to be, make those those uh, decisions. Excellent. You referenced earlier an article by uh, Kevin Flowers. I want to touch on that a little bit. Um, Jesse, I'll start with you. LaVon Beardsley, they talked about this young man, 40 years old. Um, released from uh, from Albion. And in that article, it says that they, as in ECRSSA, came to a re-entry fair while I was at Albion and had representatives talk to a couple of us about what they do. And so I, I would imagine the average person doesn't understand what the outreach looks like. So this type of effort and others, describe for us the outreach efforts that you've been involved with and how some of these people who need your services find out about you. Well, um, actually, Marcus, um, in Albion, they have um, a THU, re and reentry is is uh, actually um, something that the, the prisoners, uh, some of them know about. And with this, with, now that they're adding social workers and things of that nature in the prisons, uh, a lot of the social workers are telling them about the program. Now, we go in just to let them know. It, it's basically like, uh, okay, the social worker told you, but we're actually coming in to show you who we are and if you have any questions we can ask them, ask them personally because even though the social workers know about the program we can tell them, give them a little bit more in depth on how we operate and things of that nature uh, so a lot of that is uh, actually uh, being able to go to the prisons not just Albion uh, I've been to Forest I've been to uh, um, Rockview you know different uh, prisons around the PA area to spread the word as well and a lot of them are getting on board with reentry uh, through the social workers and, and things of that nature but let's just say uh, an individual uh, comes to our office um, what we do is is uh, we have to address what the need is because we can't put a band-aid on a wound a gunshot wound you know so we have to actually sit down have a conversation with the individual and see what they, they really need. Because, Marcus, if I get you a job and you have mental illness or drug and alcohol, guess what's going to happen in the long run? Those things yeah. undermine my progress. Right. Exactly. So we like to try to do a holistic port, uh, approach and, and address the needs that are going to help these individuals become successful, not just throw things at them that we do have. You know, so um, as uh, I heard Sheila and Amy talk about, you know, we have assistance with getting them because we we're actually we actually don't have the resources. We can point them in a direction for drug and alcohol, mental health, uh, uh, employment, which we have a very, very successful rate at getting them employment. If that's something that they need at that time and other things are addressed. Um Mentoring. Sometimes, you know, we have a peer, uh, 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 a peer uh, advocate group every Wednesday just to come in and talk about it, and they feel comfortable talking to us because we have uh, um, experience in the criminal justice mm -hmm. system as well. So it's one of those things where, um, you know, um, with the help of other partners in the community. And uh, the things that we, the funding enables us to provide, such as let's just say an individual gets a job in these work boots. We can actually help that individual purchase those work boots, which would be a barrier usually in the past. I can tell you just yesterday, 
if it wasn't for the ECRSS program, an individual would have actually probably been back in in, in jail. Mm-hmm. You know, yeah, yeah, yeah. Mr. Beardsley, Levon, that they profiled in this article, he's a welder now, if I'm not yeah. mistaken. We assisted him in getting a job at Ridgerat, which he loves. He talks about it a lot. Yeah. Um, he came to the program, told us uh, what his uh, um, some of the things that um, you know that he was good at, and, and and then we addressed that with several companies that uh, the team goes out and builds relationships with uh, different companies and uh, and let them know about our program, and we we a couple have come on board and it's getting better. So Tyshawn, on a day to day basis, so you're coming from a uh, YMCA perspective, your portion of it is housed at the Y, if I'm not mistaken. So as a client advocate, give us an idea of what your day-to-day operation looks like and what your outreach looks like. Well, as a client advocate, is is basically to mentor and give them someone who has that experience, who's been through what they have spent through, and showing them at, at times they want to know your record too. If they, I've been to jail, I've been, you know, I, I had multiple cases and for 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 what it's worth I never cooperated on anyone so that gives them a sense that they can respect me so that's one level of respect they got so you know if they know you ain't no sucker and you know and at the same time but at the, I give them that that comfort well you can come and sit and talk to me for hours and we you know if you say something crazy they know I'm I'm not going for that and they can respect that because they know that I've been through that and I'm here to help and they know I'm being sincere. Like in the touch on his point of outreach, I went to Albion uh, two days in a row. I went for the outreach program and I went for a day responsibility. And the men were so receptive to that. To see someone they know, some of them I knew from Huntington, from different places, and to see someone they know stand up there and say, oh, I got your hand. You reach out, you come home, I got you. I get multiple letters all the time from Albion. Um, I took I took four other individuals with me that's been successful. They're not necessary in our program, but they support the program. So to, just to see men out there up on that stage, giving them inspiration, it was beautiful to them. And at the same time, we keep each other in line. Even the ones I reached out to, I got a, this is a request slip that a friend of mine sent me. This is a request slip from the penitentiary. And it says, this is just a reminder of what not to bring your ass back to. So remember these dumb request slips and don't, don't ever uh, have to fill these joints out again. Fill them out again, mm-hmm. and it, you know, and it, and and I just got this two days ago, and it, and it, and it touched me, mm-hmm. because he's trying to keep me. This is a friend of mine, but he's trying to keep me on my toes as well, you know. It's reminding you of this reg, this regulated lifestyle exactly. with somebody else calling the shots for your every exactly. move. Exactly. Bishop Brock and Matt Harris were on the show a few months ago, and Matt's a retired state police officer. Um, Bishop obviously has has been involved with pastoral work for several decades here. And one of the things they pointed out, going back to a statement by um, Mr. Beardsley here in this article, his father of two children, he said he wanted his kids to see a different side of him. The things that Bishop and Matt pointed out that 
when it comes to burying these kids, Bishop said, these are the same families. Bishop said, I've buried father, grandfather, son. Matt talked about it from an arrest standpoint when he was with the state police officer. You know, in those 20 years, he has arrested grandfather, son, grandson at the call-in with all of these black men who were making decent or good decisions in their lives and bearing the fruit of that. By no coincidence, all of these men were from the communities that these young men that were a part of the call-in were from. And so it just goes to the whole idea of this being a game changer and how connected it is. I know as a community, we spend a lot of money on community schools, rightfully so. We spend a lot of money on programs in the, at the, the community centers, rightfully so. And, and, you know, youth centers that help children, neighborhood arts, art house, the list goes on and on and on. The people that you're helping through ECRSSA, these are the, these are the same exact families right. that the other programs are help, so it's connected. Correct. And Sheila, I know that's something that as you're talking about this funding crisis that you want people to be aware of, what you're doing, the results that you touted in the first segment, this directly sometimes and indirectly others affects everything that we're throwing money at from a social services aspect. Wouldn't you agree? Absolutely. They, and it is a ripple effect. You know how it is when you toss the pebble in a still water, it ripples out. And uh, it's a different area that has never been served. We are a different program that has never been served before or utilized in Erie, in Erie County. We're an Erie County program. We'll go anywhere within the county. And when you think about this population, individuals coming back, that how this is, we've got a 7% recidivism rate and a 77% uh, placement rate for jobs. There's a direct correlation when you think about that. Here's another thing on the other side. So when you think about the call-in, at our last call-in, we had 202 names on the list that was um, compiled under data of potential invitees. Out of that, there were 34 minors under, under 18, with one name with a person as young as 11 years old on that list. And of course, we did not bring that person in that was too young, but that means 17% were under 18 years old. That we, I looked over the list and we had an average between 14 to 28 years old, and the average age was 21. If they don't change their lives, they're going to be coming in on the reentry side. Mm -hmm. The cycle's going to continue. So no wonder we have both programs, both initiatives with one goal underneath our prong. If this program ends, we're going to go right back to where we were. And my guess would be anywhere between 12 to 18 months. Mm, so with your, with your community hats on, as we segue to the finish line, with your community hats on, is this program, and not just as an employee, right. is this program effective in your opinions? And then we'll go to Sheila for the last word. Jesse, from a community standpoint, for somebody that's from this community that has suffered the effects of all of this madness personally, does this program work? Absolutely, Marcus. Uh, at one point in time in my community, I've never been fearful in Erie at all, but at one point in time in my community, I was fearful of these gangs and, and all of this That's mayhem that was going on. And and I'm not a fearful person other than to God, you know. Uh, and when it's 
program came along and now all these gangs have disbanded and I can actually go sit on my porch um, you know it's um, it's definitely I, I believe 100% plus I'm going down with the ship right good point even though it's ending I haven't went anywhere I haven't applied anywhere I, I have so much faith in this program it's actually touched my life being able to give back from things from uh, being helped by others as well. So yes, Marcus, I this program works a hundred. I see it every day. And you're all in. Yeah. Tashan, does this program work from a community standpoint? Um, I would like to say I'm an example that it works. And like you said, he hasn't applied anywhere. I can't apply anywhere. This is all I know. This is what I love. We got a, a client, Antonio Howard. This is how he's he went from the MA a leadership position at the MHA Center he's been out one year a little over one year now he's a paralegal in the federal office he's employed by the federal government mm -hmm. in a little over one year and all this not to say that I pushed him all the way I mean because he had all these skills himself he set himself up, up for this but I was in position to hold his hand and be that man and be that friend to put to push him along and hold him along and move him along. Mike Outlaw used to be in this program. He's in the mayor's office. This this is this is evidence that this this works mm -hmm. and this is a special program. Mm -hmm. And I can't you I'm without this it'll be chaos and that's just that's just being blunt. You got to have this. You can't come home from prison and have nothing. Mm -hmm. Excellent points, Tasha. Sheila, anything you want the audience to keep in mind in about a minute? If you would like to call me, you're welcome to give me a call at my office. My direct number is 870-5408. And yes, one person can make a difference just by any phone call you wish to make to any concerned legis legislator. Thank you so much, Marcus. No problem. So thank you, Sheila, for coming on the show. Thank you, you Jesse and Tyshawn, for coming on the show. And thank you for listening. I want to end with a paragraph from this article by Lisa Thompson, and I think she sums it up well. She says, backing Unified Erie's strategy is not simply bankrolling any other program, but investing in a new way to mend Erie's social fabric and maximize its most at-risk human capital. We are not other, but us. Wise words to consider. This has been Next on WQLN Radio. I want to thank our sponsors at Infinity Resources, the Erie County DA's office, and the R. Benjamin Wiley Community Charter School. Tune in next month for Next on WQLN as we explore another timely topic with local guests for radio. Tune in to 91.3 FM on the fourth Sunday of the month at 4 p.m. I'm Marcus Atkinson, and for Next, we will see you all next time. WQLN Radio presents Musical Minutes. Hi, my name's Laura Nelson, and I play French horn. It's a twisty, turny one that has lots and lots of bends, and then the big bell that we put our hand inside. A lot of people wonder why we do that. It's because we can do a lot with that hand in there. 
It's not because it's dark and warm and safe, feels good. No, we put it in there because there's a lot we can do to change the, the sound and make different adjustments in the pitch and things like that. The French horn is a brass instrument like the trumpet or the trombone. I started playing French horn when I was nine. I went to a school that didn't have an orchestra and what I really wanted to play was the cello. But since there was no orchestra, I had to choose from uh, the winds and the brass. So I heard the French horn and absolutely loved the sound. So that's why I chose the horn. Musical Minutes are brought to you by WQLN Radio and supported by Erie Arts and Culture.